I want to tell you a story about a Trappist monk. Trappist monks go to a monastery and they take a vow of silence. And I heard about this one guy who he was a first time, uh, you know, first year as a monk. And uh, you know, one of the rules was you could speak two words after three years. Two words after three years. And so after the first three years, he came back to his brother superior and said, "Cold room." He went back another three years, and uh, after another three years, after six years, totally came back, and he said, bed bugs. Went back another three years, and he came back, and he said, I quit. And Brother Superior said, I'm not surprised you've done nothing but complain since you've been here. (laughs) You know, earning the right to be heard can take some time can take some time to earn the right to be heard. We all want to be influential. I mean, it, th- think about the last time you were trying to decide where to go to eat, right? Maybe you had an idea where you wanted to go, or maybe, maybe for you it's just you want to be influential in your household about when bedtime is. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, we all want to, anytime you open your mouth, you're, 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 you're in a way arguing. I mean, all communication is a form of, of, of argument. It, it's making a point. It's trying to it's trying to assert something. It's, it's trying to influence the people and our world around us. How do we reach out and influence the culture and the people in our spheres of influence with our faith? That's even more challenging. How do we do that? How do we reach out without pushing away? How do we reach out without them pushing back? How do you influence within your spheres of influence, and, and the answer we're going to be exploring this morning is that we have to learn to be relevant without compromise. We need to be bridge builders, becoming relevant, meeting people where they are, but without compromise. That's what's behind Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Hear God's word this morning, starting with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Holy God, we do pray that you would bless this word, not only to our minds to understand it, but our hearts to receive it, and that through our hands and feet we may bear it out. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to jump right in, because we're talking about building a bridge. We're talking about being relevant without compromise. We're talking about being salt and light in a world that needs salt and light. We're going to unpack those different elements of salt and light this morning. But I want to put this image in your head. I'm going to be talking about a bridge this morning, about two anchor points and and the bridge itself. 
So if, if we're going to reach out to people, if we're going to be influential in your school, in your relationships, in your spheres of influence, in your workplaces, in the coming and going of life, if you're going to be influential in terms of faith, hope, and love, then you have to first have an anchor point. You have to be something. Jesus is, is abundantly clear that just knowing something isn't the thing. Being something is the thing. The more I was thinking about this this week, this image of salt, I just was thinking last week about being a resident alien. And I was talking about how you're a, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, but you're living here. That's a resident alien. Salt is that very same concept. What Jesus is doing here is just, it's like brilliant. He's using a simple everyday element, and he's a mineral, and he's, he's drawing these incredibly profound connections to your life. And what he's saying here is, first, if you're going to build a bridge, you have to have a first, you, you have to have to, a first place to start, an anchor point on this side of the chasm. You have to be salt. You have to be something. It's not about right answer Christianity, in other words. I mean, I hear people all the time talk about how they, uh, they tried to reach out to somebody and it didn't work. And I, when, when I hear what they were saying and what they were doing, I realize that, that they were just sort of, they, they actually were being kind of moralistic. You know, people can tell if, if what you're doing is loving them or if you have an agenda. It's kind of like, you know, if you have three buttons on your shirt and you're saying, you know, uh, someone says, hey, I like your, your, your buttons. Yeah, yeah, there are three of them. Have I ever told you about the, the Trinity? I mean, it's kind of like, what? Where was that? What kind of segue is that? I mean, come on. I mean, what, what are you talking about? I mean, look, it looks like you're, you're just constantly trying to sell somebody on something instead of just loving them. You have to be something. You have to be someone who has faith, hope, and love. You have to be something. There's a, there's, a, there's a writer, Flannery O'Connor. I hope you've heard of her. If you've not heard of her, Georgia people, you need to know who Flannery O'Connor is. She's the best writer from Georgia ever. I mean, she's the most incredible writer, one of, one, one of the most brilliant uh, um, storytellers of, in American history. And she's from Georgia. She's from, she's from uh, Milledgeville area. She lived 1925 to 1964, and she wrote these shocking stories. Why? She wrote shocking stories to confront people in cultural Christianity, in nominal faith. She said, I'm living in the Christ-haunted South, where people profess the name of Jesus outwardly, but, but their lives don't really bear it out. She tells these shocking stories. She says, I, I, I use large and startling figures because I have to shout. I have to shout at people. And so one of the stories she tells is Revelation. And a friend of mine who wrote a book on Flannery O'Connor says, this is the place to start. You need to start with Revelation to, to, to get into her. This is a good story. And, and it's a woman named Mrs. Turpin, and she's in this doctor's office. And she's interacting with the people there. And Mrs. Turpin is... Uh, is very prideful, and she doesn't realize how much her slip is showing. 
She doesn't realize that everybody can see just how prideful she is. And there's a, there's a woman she's talking to and her teenage daughter, and the teenage daughter's reading this book. And, uh, and, and the story is called Revelation, and there's a really ironic moment in, in, uh, in the story where Mrs. Turpin is, is sitting there talking about being very condescending to everybody in the waiting room. And, uh, and then she just sort of mutters to herself, oh, isn't, things are just the way that they're supposed to be. You know, I mean, when I think of what the way my life could have been, you know, she's sitting here uh, as though she's not uh, transparently saying, I could have been like you people. And everybody gets it. They understand what she's saying. They know she's being condescending. They know that she's being prideful. When I think of what my life could have been, oh, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, that you made me the way I am. And then Flannery O'Connor writes this. She says, the book hit her above her left eye. (laughs) The name of the story is Revelation. That was kind of a revelation. She has this vision then. She goes home. She doesn't understand where she went wrong, where things went wrong. She was reaching out, she thought. You know, she was bearing out her witness. But she was like what Jesus talked about when he spoke to the Pharisees. You whitened, whitewashed sepulchers. He's saying, you guys are graves. And just because you got a fresh coat of paint doesn't mean you're not dead. Jesus does not mince words when it comes to hypocrisy. He wants us to be something, not just get the answers right, not just to be on the right team, not just to say, hey, this is our party line, not just to say, look, here's our rule book, or, you know, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're one of these, not one of those. He's saying, be something, be something. And when you say somebody's salt of the earth, it really comes straight out of this passage. You are the salt of the earth. What do you think of when you think of somebody who's the salt of the earth? You know, somebody who gives you the shirt off their back. Somebody who, when you look at them and when you talk to them, uh, they are what they say they are. What you see is what you get. It doesn't mean they're not sophisticated. It doesn't mean they can't see that, that um, your own duplicity. It doesn't mean they don't have deep insight or are educated. It doesn't mean they're simpletons. But it does mean that there's a certain simplicity, that every layer of their life has integrity, that what they are on the outside is what they are on the inside. And it's more important that they get what they know right than that they accumulate more knowledge so that they may parade it. So if we're going to reach out without pushing back, we have to have an anchor point. And that anchor point is to be something. It's to be salt. It's to be somebody of faith hope, and love. It's to be, not first and foremost to do. But second of all, you also have to have another anchor point for the bridge. The other anchor point is at a place in cultural relevance. So this, this anchor point uh, where you're being something, that's, that's the no compromise side of it. But this anchor point is, is firmly fixed in a place of relevance, relevance in the culture, in this day and age, where you're connecting across the chasm. In other words, salt does something. Salt 
does something in the culture that's relevant to the culture. Are you with me? We're supposed to be salt, but salt is supposed to do something. Do you know what salt is supposed to do? A lot of times people think, well, what Jesus is using, this is, is flavor, and you're supposed to bring out the best in what's going on. Yeah, it could be that. It could be partly that. It could be sort of a complex uh, illustration. But I really think that what Jesus is saying is that salt preserves. It preserves meat. This is before refrigeration. And so people would salt meat, so like beef jerky, right? So the salt is what keeps meat from going bad. Salt preserves. And so we need to be relevant in culture in order to what? Preserve it. And what does that mean? That means that we bring what we are, and what we are represents the enduring nature of the gospel. If you have faith and you have hope and you have love, these are enduring values. Faith, hope, and love remain, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love relate. The the world will pass away, but faith, hope, and love remain. These are enduring values. And so salt in the culture, faith, hope, and love, your relationships with people who are far from God preserve the culture. Patrick Moynihan, uh, you know, a congressman, he, he said some years ago, he said, we have to be careful because the pressure on the culture, the pressure of the culture on the Congress is to define deviance down. Define deviance down. Our laws codified are a point of reference for the culture. But We, our human nature, is always wanting permission to push the envelope, to do something more, to do something different. We, especially Americans, we're always trying to, you know, I mean, it's not not enough to drink Mountain Dew on water skis. You have to wear the water skis jumping out of a plane in a parachute. You know, I mean, we're pushing the threshold all the time. And and so the the temptation is to, to define freedom only in terms of permission and individuality. And so Moynihan saw this happening and he said, we have this temptation to define deviance down. You know, the only system, the only governing system that does not require trustworthy, faithful, salt and light people is a tyranny. We have to be in public places. We have to speak our values. You know, I grew up and one of the phrases that was kicked around when I was in high school is, don't push your morals on me. And I... I, I, I wasn't knowledgeable or, or witty or sophisticated enough to say, well, isn't that a moral that you're pushing on me right now? You know, I, mean, I wish I could have just said, you know, you're doing that to me right now. I wasn't saying anything, and then suddenly you, you identify me as a Christian, and I, I'm the pushy one. You're pushing. Quit pushing, right? Somebody's morals are going to be legislated. Don't legislate morality. Don't legislate your morality. Well, what are we legislating if not morality? We're legislating morality. I mean, last week I told you about, uh, I was reading this uh, article about a guy who said, you know, we, we need to have less Christian influence on our morals. But, well, what morals are you going to have? Are there any morals that, that then, is there anything that unites us then? I mean, one of the benefits of having common morals is having common expectations and common ground. 
People who say that haven't thought it all the way through. They have to think through what they're saying to their logical conclusions. There are lots of philosophers that you know you, you've heard their names, and they've done this for us. Nietzsche, he said, look, if, apart from Christian morals, I mean, he wasn't a Christian, but he said, apart from Christian morals, we can do whatever we want. Right? You can come punch me, and I have nothing to say about it. Right? Every man for himself. That's the logical conclusion. So we have to be in it. Wilberforce understood this. Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, you've heard the story, uh, maybe seen the movie Amazing Grace. Eric Metaxas wrote the book Amazing Grace, and he tells the story of Wilberforce who, who for 40 years, let that sink in, 40 years fought to end slavery. Four decades of plotting wearing them down but he had to be there in the mix he had to be there for 40 years he had to anchor his bridge on the cultural side of the divide he had to be there in it in order to bring the influence he had to bring a relevant voice he had to be in the relevant place of relevance in the in, in in the legislature but what did he bring enduring values, enduring values. All around us, people are going to be wanting to have permission to do things that aren't good for them. They're not good for them. They're not good for us. How do we develop a winsome voice of relevance so that what we're saying doesn't sound moralistic, but it says, it sounds loving. It says, this isn't good for you. When you break the law, you break yourself on it. You see, that's the mindset. We have to change the way we think about how we engage with people who are far from God. This is the way John Stott put it. If you haven't heard of John Stott, apart from, uh, you know, in addition to Flannery O'Connor, you need to know who John Stott is. John Stott is one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. He died a few years ago, but his, I mean, if, if you want a Bible study, then just Find John Stott and buy anything he's produced. It's going to be fantastic. You need to know who John Stott is. He said this. When society goes bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question is, where's the salt? That's John Stott. Michael Ware wrote a book uh, I read uh, a couple weeks ago uh, called Reclaiming Hope. And he went to Washington, D.C. To, to bring a Wilberforce kind of influence on the legislature. He was working actually in the executive branch, but... He wanted to be influential in D.C., and he became disillusioned because he thought that just being on the right team meant that everybody was going to play nice and not run with scissors, right? He was disillusioned because he realized that there isn't a right team. There are only enduring values. There's only salt and light. There's only faith, hope, and love. You can't just pull the lever for one side or another and think that you're going to be doing it right. You have to realize, you can't, you can't make an idol of our party system or any leader, local, 
international, national. We can't put our hope there. We have to be involved. We have to be salt and light. Julian was one of the emperors of, of Rome in 355. After Christianity was, was declared to be okay, Julian came in after Constantine. And Julian did not like Christianity. See, Julian was trying to, to keep the Roman Empire together. He saw things fragmenting and he thought, you know, we need to be more pluralistic, right? Now, you can see parallels to our day and age here. Julian thought that in giving people more permission to do whatever, that people would just be okay and that he could hold things together. And so he kind of tried to make the Christians a scapegoat again. And he put them down. He said, he said uh, that... I, I thought I had a quote here, but I don't have his quote, so I'm going to have to paraphrase. He... Uh, what, what he did was he looked at what Christians were doing and taking care of widows and orphans. He saw their lifestyle and he said, they're making us look bad. You see, even if we're not in power, even if Christians don't have power, we don't try to get a bigger lever or a bigger club and whack the, our uh, opponent with it. We go back to the basics, to the fundamentals. Where does influence come? It comes by being salt and light. And so just by taking care of the Greek widows and orphans, people who were poor, the Christians had marvelous influence over the entire Roman Empire. And so we need to have our anchor point in place places of relevance because that's where people begin to see that you are who you say you are. Esse quam videri is the Latin phrase for this. To be and not just to seem. It's born out in relevant actions. Relevance without compromise. Finally this. If we're going to have influence without pushing back, we need to have an anchor point on one side of the chasm, right? We need to be salt, light, we need to have an anchor point in the culture, relevance, relevance without compromise, dealing with the problems of the city, dealing with the problems of culture, being problem solver, being self-sacrificial in the ways that we solve these problems. But finally this, we have to cross that bridge. Not just two anchor points, we have to cross the bridge in order to have influence in order to earn the right to be heard, we have to go there. Philippians chapter 2 says this, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or held onto, but he humbled himself and took on the nature of a servant. And being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Jesus crossed the bridge. He was who he said he was, but he came to a place of need. Jesus put, him around all, put himself around all kinds of uh, crazy cast of characters. Stott, again, he says this. What do you do with a man who's supposed to be the holiest man who's ever lived and yet goes around talking with prostitutes and hugging lepers? What do you do with a man who not only mingles with the most unsavory people but actually seems to enjoy them? Think about that. Enjoy them? The religious accused him of being a drunkard, a glutton, 
and having tacky taste in friends. <laughs> it is a profound irony that the Son of God visited this planet and one of the chief complaints against him was that he was not religious enough. A ship is safe in the harbor, but that's not what a ship was built for. A ship is safe in the harbor, but that's not what ships are made for. They're made for the sea. They're made to get out there, to be a part of what's happening, to be a part of an adventure, of taking faith, hope, and love and sowing it like a seed or, 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 or using it like salt or exposing light into shadowy places. You see it in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29. It says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is hilarious. He's like, go, live your life, be happy. You just exiled us. The Babylonians have carried off all of our goods. He says, build new houses, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, Seek the welfare of the city to which you have been exiled. What? Yeah. See how Jesus is consistent with that that message? Almost as if he knew that message. You see the integrity there? See how I read that, that passage from Stott and he's talking about Jesus actually enjoying the people around him? People know when you love them. They also know when you have an agenda. And even if your agenda is faith, hope, and love, it's still an agenda. If you're moving towards somebody because you just want to change them, then you're taking on the role of the Holy Spirit. Give the Spirit a place to work, but you just love people. doesn't mean you don't have real words. doesn't mean you don't challenge people. doesn't mean you don't say the words, hey, I'm a Christ follower, and, uh, and here's the difference in me doesn't mean that you don't say, hey, look, I, I, I've noticed that, that you're down, you're having trouble, but you have to earn that right. You have to wait for the opening. You have to wait for a question sometimes. And you have to be there, meanwhile, in, in some very relevant ways, relevant ways. Let me give just a few. We've built a coalition that has come out of our vision team, and that's just to bring people together around the city informally to try to solve some problems. And so behind the scenes, there, there are some things that are going on that, for example, will help people become business owners. Wouldn't it be amazing that if in 10 years, that as a result of, of our church being involved in the city, that there were a dozen new businesses just because some Christians decided that the people who are struggling in the margins of life, if they had a little bit of training and some networking and they had some doors open for them and maybe a little bit of financing, that they could own their own business. And what's it for? What's the kickback for us? Nothing. It's just to be there and to love them. Do you think, do you think that if Christians who are just such a microcosm of the Roman Empire threatened Julian the emperor just by loving widows and orphans and taking care of poor people that we can't have a profound effect on this city? That we have to take four spiritual laws and we have to slap people across the face with them? No. 
People are far from the church and far from God because of moralism that does not match up with our Christian faith. They've had, they've had the Mrs. Turpins throughout the, their lifetime, and they need somebody just to be in their life in relevant ways to love them. And when the moment is right and the Spirit is moving, you cross that bridge. You share your faith. Next week, I'm going to talk explicitly about how you tell people about the way your faith has changed you. Let's pray again. God, would you make us saltier people? People of light, people who do not put it under a bushel, but know how to engage at every level of life with faith, with hope, with love. God, take our lives and let them be consecrated to that end. In Jesus' name.